Hello and welcome to a more perfect podcast. This is part two of my election fraud episode, so if you haven't heard the first part, then go and check it out. This is going to continue directly where that episode left off. So without further ado, let's find out why I don't believe in voter fraud, despite everything I laid out in part one. The case against voter fraud is really quite extensive because if we look at the case for voter fraud, the stuff that I just went over, it really is extremely extensive. I mean, it goes from claims specific like rule changes as far as the naked ballots are concerned to broad like the popular vote versus the registered vote numbers. So it's the case for election fraud is all over the place and it supports a single narrative here which is that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and I really can't blame people honestly I really can't for believing in voter fraud I mean there really is a fleshed out case for it I will admit it myself I mean there really is the problem is that if you look at the case against it it fulfills and denies everything pretty much pertaining to voter fraud the stuff that it doesn't catch is insignificant in my opinion and it wouldn't really flip the entire election anyway so thus it's a kind of a moot point but admittedly there are some things in not believing in voter fraud that i cannot understand as i implied earlier when i said that i have to make concessions to these people at certain points so i've broken my case for against fraud into 10 different sections and i'll be going over those sections now so the first section is the people that are saying that biden couldn't have won if you just look at him common sense tells you this man was not elected by 80 million people he can't even finish a sentence without trailing off into la la land i mean it's like it's like the wizard of oz except not be even being able to speak okay the wizard of oz is biden and the people that are actually controlling the government are the dude behind the curtain okay if you think that we have an actual president right now you you are very sorely mistaken biden is not in charge of the country unelected bureaucrats are in charge of the country there's reports that kamala harris the vice president is taking the calls from foreign leaders because biden cannot talk let alone effectively communicate with anything all he can do is sit there like a zombie and sign papers okay common sense would tell you this guy was not elected by the public the public can see right through his alzheimer's and say okay i i, I may not like trump but i'm gonna vote for him or i'm or i'm just not gonna vote for biden all right common sense would say that except it doesn't you see biden was on a popular vote commanding ticket for not one presidential run but three because he was on the ticket with obama biden in 2008 obama biden in 2012 and on the ticket with biden harris in 2020 so this dude has the name recognition of a giant that's not to say donald trump doesn't but this guy is the establishment furthermore he was also voted in by democrats in the primaries who had the sole goal of beating donald trump they 
didn't really embrace the more radical sides of the party, which were admittedly all around Biden, and Biden is radical. Don't let them tell you he's not because he is. They wanted somebody that could beat Donald Trump. And that's specifically probably the only reason why a plurality of them picked Biden as the nominee. Hell, actually, the Democratic Party picked not Biden as the nominee. I encourage you to look at the weeks preceding the primary election in the Democrat Party. That happened, I think, back in 2019, a few days before. Every single Democrat, except for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think, dropped out and endorsed Biden. Like, Pete Buttigieg dropped out and endorsed Biden. Kamala Harris was actually the first one to drop out, and she endorsed Biden. And, like, all, there's all these endorsements going on, and, and a bunch of candidates are dropping out. So they basically gave it to Biden. And... In my opinion, they stole it from Bernie a second time because they did the same thing to Bernie in 2016. I guess the establishment doesn't like him. I mean, like, the establishment would never like Bernie Sanders. What the hell am I saying? That being said, they elected him as their nominee because they wanted somebody to beat Donald Trump. So, in my view, it's common sense that he would get as many votes as he did because they wanted to beat Donald Trump. That was the only reason. But, of course, one could say that well, they nominate somebody that they think is going to beat the other candidate in every single election. I mean, that's the nature of nominating a good candidate, is somebody that can beat the opposing party. I mean, duh. Like, that's what an election is. So, it goes even... It, it, it gets even more simple as to why the 80 million votes is pretty explainable, if you think about it. Donald Trump. Donald Trump is on the ballot this election. Joe Biden is a piece of bread. He, he's bland. He has nothing to him. He stands for nothing except for what the people behind him are, are whispering in his ear. He, he, he's literally a zombie. So naturally, all the attention gets focused. I mean, if it wasn't already, honestly, I doubt that if Biden had an agenda that they would even pay attention to it because all of it is left-leaning nowadays. But that being said... All of the attention went to Donald Trump, and the election became a referendum on Trump. Every ounce of Trump's policy, every fiber of Donald Trump's being was hated by the Democrats, whether it was Trump's personal life, whether it was Trump's presidential conduct, whether it was Trump's family, whether it was the Republican Party in general. It was hated every single day by the Democrats, and every single day, Trump fought against the establishment in Washington, Trump fought against the quickly radicalizing left side of the aisle. Liberals over the course of four years and before then actually, they were on a rapid trajectory towards the far left. And now I would say that liberals have moved completely leftward from where they were. Like the centrist positions a few years ago are now considered right. They're considered like the center of the right. And the center left, so the, the, the few reasonable Democrats that are left, are just that. They're very few and far between, because the entire party has been ratcheted to the left. And so Trump, in his four years of office, and every single thing that he did, every single word, every single statement that he spoke was vilified by the media, even if it wasn't inherently political. 
it was agitating to the Democrats. So the Democrats, not wanting to be agitated for another four years, would logically come out in droves, or rather not come out in droves, but as my second point, vote in droves by mail for Joe Biden. All of this stuff, whether it be Biden being chosen by the Democratic establishment to beat Donald Trump over all of the other candidates, or the fact that Biden was on not one, but three presidential tickets, who, which, which all of them commanded the popular vote in, on all three elections, 2008, 2012, and 2020, or whether it's just the polar, polarizing effect of Donald Trump himself. All three of those factors can easily explain a common sense, oh, duh, argument, you could say, for 80 million votes for Joe Biden. I mean, it really is quite simple if you look at it and if you think about why these things could happen. I know it seems improbable, but there are reasons for everything. There is a reason that Trump lost. I may not know it now, but this certainly is very explainable, and it's it's quite straightforward if you actually think about it. So, thus, the common sense, nobody could vote for somebody with Alzheimer's, dude. Like, just look at him. Doesn't really hold water for me. I gotta say that it makes sense upon first glance, but that's because it's superficial logic and it's just not thorough enough to hold against the explanations against it. It really is just that. Really a superficial, empty suit of a case against the election. Moving on from that, though, there is another rationale for believing in voter fraud that doesn't hold substance at all. There's the people that say that the voting behavioral differences between Democrats and Republicans this election are just way, way too big for it to be logical. It just, the, these people say that it just doesn't make sense that Democrats would vote so heavily male and Republicans would vote so heavily in person. Except, just like the common sense argument, it actually is very explainable because what the Democrats say to their constituency, vote by mail, vote by mail, vote by mail. If you look at, for, for, for instance, to, to cite a very specific example in Florida, if you look at the registered Democrats versus Republicans, and you look at how many people had requested a mail-in ballot, Democrats dwarf the Republicans. I, th I think it was about like 80% to 20% as far as percentages of the electorate that requested a mail-in ballot. Different parties advocated different strategies. Hell, Donald Trump himself literally advocated, he railed against mail-in voting every single day. At the primaries, Donald Trump said that it was going to be a disaster. And what do you know? Oh my gosh. Come election day, Republicans vote in person. Republicans were incredibly skeptical of mail-in ballots. I was skeptical of mail-in ballots. I was even skeptical of voting in person on election day. That's why I voted early for Donald Trump. There was an incredibly different trust in the election systems. Democrats are, by all surveys, there was, there's been Gallup surveys, there's been Pew Research all of this indicates that Democrats are more cautious about the coronavirus and Democrats are just way more trusting in the systems. I mean, hell, they're just saying people that push the stem racism, go figure. And it's just the different rationale that would just totally easily provide for the fact that, of course, they're voting 
methods are going to be different. Anyone who says that it's inexplainable hasn't been paying attention that well. But honestly, I would say that the people that think that there was fraud are paying attention even more than those that don't think there was fraud. Because the majority of those that don't think there was fraud are generally liberals who just listen to the TV all day and then just kind of form their beliefs based upon what they hear on TV and maybe a smidgen of their own quote-unquote personal research, which means they read somebody's repost of what they see on TV. No, these people are not not paying attention. They're very involved. The thing is that when you're involved, you can get confirmation bias to where you, whether consciously or unconsciously, disregard evidence that goes against your narrative or you only subscribe to the outlets which reinforce your narrative. Now, this is a big problem with political polarization. It's a whole psychological phenomenon. I won't go into it here, but that's the gist, according to my understanding, about confirmation bias. And it's precisely this confirmation bias that leads us to our next huge issue with believing in voter fraud. There was a number of people after the election was called for Joe Biden that said that the number of registered voters was less than the popular vote. So this would imply that there was a bunch of unregistered voters illegally voting and sweeping in to steal the election from Donald Trump and give it to Joe Biden. This is inaccurate, but the way that the narrative was drawn out was actually really interesting. So obviously, it's, it's pretty easy to say, okay, this is wrong, because all you have to do is just check the popular vote numbers, and then you check the number of registered voters in 2020. If you do your math right, you'll always get a popular vote total that is less than the number of registered voters. Because obviously, if you think about it, not all registered voters are going to vote in any election. Despite this election being incredibly contentious and the turnout being historically high, there was, in fact, only 159,633,396 people who voted in this election as compared to a total electorate meaning the total registered voters, coming out at a cool 213,799,467. So we can see the registered voters was greater than the popular vote numbers. The claim, once again, holds no water. But with claims like this, you've got to ask yourself, how did they pick up so much steam? I mean, surely people could just go online and then do the simple math problem to find out that, yes indeed, the registered vote was higher than the popular vote. And then you would surely think that the people could see that the data was unverifiable. That the charts were wrong. Except, there's one problem. The charts were using legitimate data. It's just that the legitimate data that they were using was not the right data. They were applying the wrong data set to the 2020 election. People were actually taking the number of registered voters from 2018 and applying that same logic to the 2020 election. 
and obviously more people are going to register to vote between 2018 and 2020. So those numbers aren't necessarily going to match up. However, you know, if you take the chart into Photoshop, you change that 2018 to 2020, you can fool a whole bunch of people with a supposed simple math proving that Biden lost the election and tens of millions of votes were just drawn up overnight to put Biden in the White House and kick Trump out. That's not what happened. It's very easy to verify. I, I, I literally didn't even see one fact check. I, I just did the simple math myself and got the right answer because I was going off of the right data. Now, I realize that it can be hard because we want to believe things that confirm what our beliefs are. We want beliefs to be reinforced. However, this is perfect proof of the fact that we've got to remain skeptical even of things that we like because they could be wrong. And in this case, it was pretty freaking wrong. The sad part is this wasn't even the only narrative that was based upon junk data. No, there was another one out there that said that Biden's votes spiked in the middle of the night and th th this one's actually pretty funny because they made this t-shirt, right? And they made the vote spike in the middle of the night into like an F. And then it says fraud on the t-shirt. And it is, it is fantastic. Like, I'm just saying if you have that t-shirt, if you actually bought one, wear it all your life. That thing is a historical relic. You are a legend for having that shirt. It is fantastic. The actual voter spike in the middle of the night. One of them was actually just a typo by a poll worker that was corrected like, I, I think I saw like 20 minutes later. And then the other one was actually incredibly predictable or, or, or the, the, the other vote spikes because there were multiple vote spikes in the 2020 election. It's literally the votes that are coming in from the big cities. So Philadelphia, once you, once all those votes come in from Philadelphia, from the Philadelphia precincts within the city, there's going to be a huge influx of Democratic voters because people in huge cities vote Democrat. They're liberal. People in the suburbs, in the, in, in the rural areas, generally tend to be more mixed. And then, especially in the rural areas, they tend to vote heavily Republican. But the more concentrated in the city you are, the more liberal it's going to get. And, and that applies pretty much everywhere in the United States. City people are liberal people. There's no mystery really to be solved about these voter spikes. Sure, it looks really, really convincing like all the other narratives. And yet, if you think about it past the surface and you get past the confirmation bias that I was talking about earlier, at least I think that was going on. I mean, there, there's also incredibly high levels of partisanship here. So that could be just kind of screwing with people's perception of what's true and what's not true. Um, anyways, if, if, if you get past that, then the voter spikes are just reflective of the demographics of the state. More concentrated people, more concentrated data. So if all of the numbers make sense and the behaviors between Democrats and Republicans make sense, then is there any reasonable line of thought that would lead somebody to believe that the election wasn't legitimate? 
Well, yeah, of course there is. This is where we're going to talk about Pennsylvania and the rule changes. And for that, I'm going to play a clip from Fox News where they were reporting on this very problem as it was happening. And then I'm going to tell you how the lawsuit ended up turning out. President Trump meeting today with campaign staff and advisors as he pushes ahead with these legal challenges to the election. The most prominent lawsuit is in Pennsylvania, where the deadline for mail-in ballots is at the center of that dispute in a case that could land at the Supreme Court. Correspondent Brian Yenis live once again tonight for us in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Brian. Hi, Martha. Well, look, Pennsylvania Republicans, the Trump campaign, and 10 attorneys general from red states have petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, urging them to take this case up. Now, under Pennsylvania's Act 77, mail ballots must arrive by 8 p.m. on November 3rd to count. Now, Pennsylvania's Supreme Court bypassed the legislature and extended the deadline by three days, which meant as long as mail ballots were postmarked by November 3rd and arrived by 5 p.m. November 6th, they count. Now, Republicans argue the extension is unconstitutional. Pennsylvania's Department of State estimates approximately 10,000 ballots arrived within this three-day extension. Even if the U.S. Supreme Court decided that all of these votes are invalid, it's not enough to overcome Biden's lead, which is over 49,700. And the lead is growing as 45,000 mail ballots are still being counted. Republicans are also eyeing provisional ballots. The, there are some 94,000 provisional ballots, four times more than in 2016. Provisional ballots are cast by voters whose eligibility is in question. And this year, it included voters who requested a mail-in ballot but then decided they wanted to vote in person. Republicans are attempting to invalidate really hundreds of thousands of votes by making sweeping constitutional claims that mail-in voting rules were enforced unequally and unfairly by counties who were confused by last-minute Secretary of State guidance and by last-minute court rulings. But the bottom line is legal experts tell us you're going to need to have hard evidence to prove that there was mass fraud. And we've looked at these lawsuits and there has been no evidence that there have been ballots that were tampered with, manipulated, thrown away, or that they were cast by a sufficient or a big number uh, of dead voters, Martha. All right, so what ended up happening was that the Pennsylvania judge ruled in favor of the Trump campaign and ordered that all of those ballots that the voters needed to provide proof of identification for that arrived after November 9th couldn't be counted. So all those ballots, those 10,000 ballots, were thrown out. Even though the ballots were thrown out, however, it was only 10,000 ballots. And as you heard in the Fox News report, Joe Biden's lead, even at that time, was much higher. So even though it was able to subtract like 10,000 from his lead, it wasn't able to overcome it. And thus, the Pennsylvania rule changes, while unconstitutional and struck down by the court, weren't enough to change the election. I guess the bigger problem with these rule changes is that they create, again, the environment for fraud and they create a much easier, you could say, path for a party to rig an election. When I looked into it and I found that the rule changes, yeah, they were unconstitutional and yeah, there was a bunch of malfeasance going on, but it wasn't sufficient enough to overturn the election. I was like, okay, in a sense... Both sides are right because 
it did create the environment and quote-unquote illegal ballots were counted but then they were uncounted but then even when they were uncounted the state of the race between Trump and Biden stayed the same so it's sufficient to say that even with corruption in the Democratic ranks wow what a shocker Joe Biden wasn't handed the election via a whole bunch of illegal ballots and rule changes that counted ballots that otherwise wouldn't have been counted. All right, so with that out of the way, if you've been keeping track throughout all this, then this is number six of my points against voter fraud. This is aimed at those people who think that Trump couldn't have lost the election because Republicans won further down the ballot. How can Donald Trump the Republican candidate for president, lose while simultaneously Republicans that ran for House of Representatives win. All 27 House of Representatives candidates for the Republicans won this election cycle, and yet Donald Trump lost. How does that make sense? Because if you're going to vote for a Republican for representative, then surely you would vote for a Republican for president. The problem with this line of thinking is that it ignores two very important things. Number one, it ignores the fact that in most states, a third of the electorate is independent voters. And those independent voters could very well have voted for Biden for president and voted for a Republican to represent them. Maybe they liked the idea of a split party government, you know, because if the Republicans control the House of Representatives or if the Republicans retain the Senate, then Biden's agenda would be kind of stymied from being able to legislate and thus she would have a more moderate path for the president to achieve his goals. I can't tell you what they were thinking, but the point is that This down-ballot inconsistency argument ignores the prospect that independents could have gone either way, and independents comprise a large number of the electorate in some of these states where Trump lost and the representatives won. More broadly speaking, there is historical precedent to support the fact that representative candidates, down-ballot candidates would win while the Republican presidential candidate loses. For instance, in 1892, the Republicans regained 38 House seats while the Republican incumbent lost. Or in 1916, Republicans picked up 19 seats while they failed to defeat the Democratic incumbent. Or 1960, Richard Nixon loses to John F. Kennedy while the Republicans in that same race gained 22 seats. However, this rationale for election fraud isn't going down without a fight. Oh, no, 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 no. See, they have a counterpunch. They say that it's also suspicious that there's some ballots that only voted for Biden and didn't vote for any other race. And so the people who believe in ballot fraud beg the question, why would you go to a presidential election and only fill out one race and just leave every single other race blank. It just doesn't make sense. And they also proclaim that all these single vote ballots, meaning that ballots that only had one vote for Biden on the presidential race, are literally super suspicious because 
Again, it's just really improbable that people would vote in only one race and not the others. Right? No, that's not right. People actually vote in the presidential race only all the time in presidential elections. So let's go to 2016, for example. So in 2016, there was a bunch of states that had contested Senate races. And in those states that had contested Senate races, there were 1.8 million more votes cast in the presidential race than in the Senate races. More than three times as many votes in 2016 were cast in the presidential election versus the House of Representatives election. So yeah, obviously there is great precedent for presidential tickets being filled out and none of the other down-ballot races being filled out. If you're going to turn out for a presidential election, maybe you just care about the presidency and you don't really care who's your county commissioner or your mayor or your representative, what have you. There's a bunch of races down-ballot. It'd take me probably probably a whole episode to name all of the... Uh, elected positions that people can vote for. Point being that, yes, there is a significant portion of Americans that vote only for presidential elections and not for the other elections. But I don't want to just point to precedent here to make my case, because just because it happened back then doesn't mean it'll happen in this election. So in this election, specifically in Pennsylvania, there was a new thing for Pennsylvania voters. So they what they used to be able to do was click and have all the ballot filled out for one party. So it's it's automatic straight ticket voting, you know, if you want if you wanted to vote for Democrat, then you could just click one button and boom, all the Democratic candidates are selected and uh, you, you can submit your ballot and be on with your day. Well, this election was different in that they did not have the automatic straight ticket selector. Thus, a practice that a lot of voters were used to was not there, and they had to manually select each and every single race. Now, this is going to be a hassle for some people, and they just, they're just they just going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump and leave it be. Now, I'm not saying that this was the case with every single ballot cast in Pennsylvania, but there is a significant rationale that down-ballot results would not necessarily reflect the results of the presidential election. If you're kind of into politics, then you'll know about the coattails effect. I'm not going to explain it here, but basically, the coattails effect is just an effect. It's, it's not always a phenomenon in the presidential races, but it happens at such a rate that we have a name for it, which is the coattails phenomenon. Um, if you, if you want to look that up, it's going to be linked in the source notes for the show. I encourage you to check those out once again. Now that we've kind of covered the down-ballot inconsistency rationale for the election fraud, we're going to move on to the next point against election fraud. And that is the fact that ballots could not have been backdated and counted. So... Just like all the other rationales for election fraud, there was a huge investigation into this backdating ballots conspiracy. Um, Even Project Veritas had this guy that they were able to get a few interviews out of. It was actually an insider in the, or who worked at the 
USPS, the United States Postal Service, and uh, he gave testimony that they were backdating ballots, and he said that, oh, I heard that my supervisors were ordering people to backdate ballots, and that he had picked up some ballots after election day was over and done with and delivered them to the post office. It was, uh, it was actually a whole investigation. And the thing is that, at least in Wisconsin, those ballots couldn't have been counted anyway. I mean, sure, there might have been some ballots floating around after election day. I guarantee you there was. But those ballots could not have been counted by state law. And they weren't counted because state law prohibits it. This is not an example of a big, vast conspiracy to tamper with the mail and to make it look like these ballots were counted. No, no, no. They literally could not have been counted because it is against the law and they go through a whole bunch of security measures to make sure that they aren't being tampered with by bad actors. I mean, literally, in Wisconsin... No ballots received after 8 p.m. Tuesday, November 3rd could be counted, period. So even if the ballot was received on, say, November 5th, and it was postmarked November 3rd, as the conspiracy alleges, they, they would just throw it out because they're like, oh, it arrived too late. So this whole conspiracy about the postal offices backdating ballots to make it look like the votes were legitimate it's just it's just full of crap it really is just look at the election law and if you don't want to look at the election law then there's just the simple fact that no ballots are counted after 8 p.m on election day in states like wisconsin now don't get it twisted though these institutions that we relied upon to vote in the 2020 election as i said in the first episode were not politically neutral at all that being said though you can't push these stupid conspiracies without literally at least taking a cursory glance at the election laws in these states where you think that the backdating is happening or just look at the election procedures and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Realize that there is a whole hierarchy of supervision of postal service regulation to prevent that from happening. It may have happened, sure. I'm not denying that it happened. There could be a million measures to Sunday that would prevent something from happening, but even if it did happen, it wouldn't have been counted. It couldn't have been counted. So I think that's pretty much the end of that whole thing where people are alleging that the ballots were backdated. Even if they were, it wouldn't have been counted. Another story people have been telling is that Biden's win is suspicious because he's the first presidential candidate in 60 years to lose the states of Ohio and Florida on his way to election. They say that for a century, the states have consistently predicted the national outcome and they have been roughly representative of the American nation as a whole. And that even despite national polling giving Biden a lead in both Ohio and Florida, although, again, we covered in Florida that the lead was very narrow. Despite those leads given to him, he lost 
both Ohio and Florida. Ohio by eight points and Florida by more than three points, as I covered in the last episode. So for Biden to lose these bellwethers is a bad omen for the legitimacy of his election. Not only these bellwether states, but he also lost a bunch of bellwether counties. He lost 18 out of 19 bellwether counties to Donald Trump this election. But these people are missing something very, very important when they point out all these bellwether things. First off, they're basically like tea leaves. These these bellwether things are not a guarantee that it will predict the election. Just because something happens over and over and over again doesn't mean it'll happen this time. The second thing they're missing is the more detailed explanation to why this happened. So why this happened was that coalitions in between elections, these, these demographics of different states, they shift in between elections and over time. Obviously, people are going to move around the country. I mean, look at all the people moving from New York to Florida or from California to Texas. People move, and thus the demographics shift all around the country. This has happened before, too. So before the 2020 election, according to the National Review, only one candidate Richard Nixon in 1960 had won both Ohio and Florida and lost the election. And it also says that New York and California were once crucial swing states. <laughs> Imagine that. I mean, they're, they're just solid blue now, but they were once swing states. It, the, they were once like Florida where they could flip red or blue every single election. So the center of the country shifts from election to election, but in American politics at large, it shifts and things can go either way. It really shouldn't surprise us that the demographics and the center of the country and that the the people have moved around the country in such a way that the bellwether counties may not be bellwether counties anymore. Demographics matter, and that's why bellwethers, although they're good to predict stuff, they aren't always right just due to all of this movement in American politics that affect the, again, the demographics of the electorate. For this next claim, I'm going to play another clip. So this next claim is all about the people that believed the voting machines that we used to vote in some states were corrupt and that there was some kind of Venezuelan interference happening, that these machines were outsourced to Venezuela, or maybe that they were used in the election of Chavez, the socialist leader of Venezuela that we all know and hate, um, or that the voting machine companies had colluded with Democrats, stuff like that, all, all the stuff about voting machine companies. What really threw cold water on it for me was that the very outlets that were pushing these claims literally retracted them. So what you're going to hear next is a clip from Newsmax, which is one of these news outlets, retracting it because they were faced with a lawsuit that said, hey, you're saying the wrong thing here. And they retracted it on their own news, which is pretty funny. Here's the clip. Since election day, uh, various guests, attorneys and elected officials have appeared on Newsmax and offered opinions and claims about Smartmatic and Dominion Systems, both companies that offer voting software in the U.S. And uh, Newsmax would like to clarify its news coverage and note 
that it has not reported as true certain claims made about these companies. There are several facts our viewers and readers should be aware of. Newsmax has found no evidence that either Dominion or Smartmatic owns the other or has any business association with each other. We have no evidence that Dominion uses Smartmatic software or vice versa. No evidence has been offered that Dominion or Smartmatic use software or reprogram software that manipulated votes in the 2020 election. Smartmatic has stated that its software was only used in the 2020 election in Los Angeles, was not used in any battleground state contested by the Trump campaign. Newsmax has no evidence to the contrary. Dominion has stated the company has no ownership relationship with the Pelosi family, the Feinstein family, the Clinton family, Hugo Chavez, or the government of Venezuela. Neither Dominion nor Smartmatic has any relationship with George Soros. Smartmatic is a U.S. company and not owned by the Venezuelan government, Hugo Chavez, or any foreign official or entity. Smartmatic states that it has no operations in Venezuela, while the company did election projects in Venezuela from 2004 to 2017, it state it was never founded by Hugo Chavez, nor did it have a corrupt relationship with him or the Venezuelan government. For more on this, please go to our website at Newsmax.com. Read facts about Dominion Smartmatic that you should know. Don't worry, guys. I will not be linking the facts from Newsmax. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, like, the moment I saw the Venezuelan claim about the voter machines, I was like, no, this one's garbage. But I knew I had to cover it because I saw a lot of people talking about it. So, that's that. I just want to say that I personally never believed it. And, uh, yeah, eventually my beliefs came to fruition with that admission by, again, the very outlets that were peddling this crap. So, I'm glad to put that one to rest. The next one, though, is the biggest. I saved the best for last. The lawsuits. The first thing that we've got to understand about the lawsuits is that there was a lot of lawsuits. So many lawsuits that if I wanted to create an entirely separate episode about them, I probably could, and it would be three hours long. Yeah, there was that many lawsuits. So needless to say, I was not able to look at every single lawsuit but rather I picked out a few select ones that I think demonstrate evidence for my reasoning as to why I do not trust the claims put forward by the Trump administration or their ideological allies. Another main thing is that it wasn't just the Trump administration suing. So when people say Trump lost a kajillion lawsuits in one zero, yeah, that's not true. It wasn't just the Trump administration. In fact, it was only the Trump administration in a fraction of these cases. So yeah, it pretty much puts that narrative to rest and also they did win some lawsuits. As I went over earlier, there was the one in Pennsylvania where the Secretary of State's advice on accepting ballots was overturned, and they had to throw out 10,000 ballots. Now, it wasn't enough to overturn Biden's lead, but it still was a win in court. So, yeah, there was definitely some victories here and there for the Trump administration and their allies post-election. And you might have seen the testimonial hearings that they did in states like Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Michigan, all around the contested states that were doing these testimonial hearings where people would come forward with these sworn affidavits and under penalty of perjury, they would testify as to the election malfeasance 
dishonesty and sometimes outright voter fraud that they saw. Now, all these testimonials were taken as evidence of voter fraud. They sought to fuel the narrative that the election was stolen via fraud and that we were about to have an illegitimate president come 2021. With all of this narrative about fraud, you might be surprised to know that once the Trump campaign got in court, as well as their ideological allies, they were not suing about fraud. They literally, in three separate cases, disavowed the entire fraud narrative before the court of law. In one instance, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, Rudy Giuliani literally said, this is not a fraud case. In another instance, in Pennsylvania as well, specifically in Philadelphia, the Trump campaign literally disavowed fraud again. The judge in the court asks, if I may ask, do we agree that all that the thousands of ballots that are under challenge all represent eligible voters? And the lawyer for the Trump campaign says, yes, I'm not challenging their eligibility. Earlier in the trial, the lawyer literally said that they were challenging the Pennsylvania election code and that they were specifically challenging the uh, procedural appeals to county election boards as well as the rules governing the canvassing of official absentee ballots. So, in other words, they were challenging the election law and the way elections were conducted. They weren't even suing about fraud. Alright, so let's take a step back here. We've demonstrated now that the Trump campaign is telling the public one thing and suing in court about another in a lot of cases. They did sue about fraud in some cases that I'll get to in a second, but they were misleading the public about the cases. Now, does this affect the eligibility of the case? No, it does not. Even though things change in court, it, it doesn't mean the case is closed. And I'm sure that's what a lot of people that believe that the election was rigged say to these people, which is that things change in court all the time, which is true. And that just because things change in court, as I just said, it doesn't mean the case is closed. It doesn't mean the case is unwinnable. So let's look at a case in Arizona, in Maricopa County, Arizona, where, again, they were asked, are you suing about fraud? And they said no. But let's look at the evidence that they brought for the case itself. At this point, it is clear that they are not suing about fraud, but rather about the election process itself. As I said earlier, they would change it from fraud to the election process or the election laws, maybe some other thing, but certainly change it from fraud when they got in front of the court. The evidence that they submitted to court was literally laughable. In Arizona, the huge scandal was a Sharpie that was given out at the ballot centers to fill out the votes versus a pen because apparently they had run out of pens or, or something happened and they were giving people Sharpies and people were concerned that the Sharpie, because it bled through the ballot paper, that their vote was not going to be counted and there was all these 
conspiracy theories alle alleging that, you know, X, Y, and Z had happened with the Sharpies. Well, this is what the Trump campaign's case eventually turned to. Once they were able to present their witnesses, it went so badly for them. It went worse for them than the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin trial is going for the prosecution. When the Trump campaign's lawyer, whose name is Corey Langhofer, was put on the spot by the judge to explain the process on how they collected their evidence, he said that the evidence was reliable because, I kid you not, it was reliable because it included an online form whose reliability, Langhofer claimed, was boosted by the fact that it included a CAPTCHA, which weeded out the bots. The Trump campaign said it excluded the submissions of those who swore to lies, but they included the ones that they could not prove were lying into evidence. In other words, we couldn't prove that they were lying. We also couldn't prove that they were telling the truth. So we're going to put it in our court case anyway. Obviously, the judge caught them on this. And it says just because they can't prove that the affidavits were false doesn't mean they were trustworthy. It doesn't mean they were true at all. They were literally taking things that they couldn't prove were correct and that they couldn't disavow and put them in the court case anyway. Now, of course, if you're accepting evidence like this, I would say you're really grasping for straws. And I'd also say that it really cuts into the reliability of your evidence. It really seems like you're searching for something when nothing's there. Once the witnesses were called out, it turned into a level five clown show. So one of these witnesses was the Maricopa County Director of Election Day, Scott Jarrett. Scott Jarrett said that Sharpies bleeding through a ballot did not lead to the ballots being counted twice. Another witness that they called was the Arizona Attorney General, Mark Brinovich, who found no evidence of voter disenfranchisement, which is a fancy term for when your ballot doesn't count. But it gets even better. So you'd expect that the witnesses, which were called by the Trump campaign, would be better, that they would build up their case. No, the witnesses, which were called by the Trump campaign, once they got on the stand, they were asked, do you have any basis to believe that your vote wasn't counted? And multiple witnesses, which were called by the Trump campaign to support their case, said that, no, I'm not sure. And they couldn't say if their ballot was counted or if their ballot was not counted. In other words, the very witnesses that the Trump campaign was calling to support their case had no idea if their ballot was counted. It was a bunch of hearsay, and there was no substance at all that their ballot was not counted as one vote. So all in all, the evidence in the Arizona case was just awful, and the case was switching around outside of the courtroom. They were saying everything about fraud. Inside of the courtroom, their case would switch up. Again, just because it switches up doesn't mean it's bad. But then they couldn't even support the narrative that they switched to. Their evidence-gathering procedures consisted of a CAPTCHA. A CAPTCHA. Are you kidding me? This is, a, this is honestly a disgrace to the court of law. To present a case this bad, how, mu how much were you paid? How much were you paid is my only question. In case you're curious, the Arizona case was not the only case where they heard the evidence and decided 
upon that evidence, otherwise known as deciding on the merits. No, no, no. There was a case in Nevada too, which I have the entire transcripts to. This episode's getting a little bit long, so I'm just going to sum it up and say that they lost based upon the evidence that they submitted. It really does cut into the entire narrative of voter fraud for me and the entire case that the Trump administration was trying to present. If you can't win based upon the evidence, then that's just it. I mean, there can be some crappy courts here and there that deny things based on uh, when you filed or for whatever other reason. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons why your case can be rejected from court, but it doesn't matter if you can't even win upon your evidence, then I don't care if your case was not able to be presented. That's not an evidence of an, of an injustice. That's just an evidence of a crappy judge. What's all, But you know what? It is evidence of a bad court case. Bad evidence. And they didn't have the evidence. There really was no evidence of widespread voter fraud like they were alleging. I hate to be the mainstream media here, but in this one instance, they seem to have gotten it right. In Nevada, in Arizona, and in God knows how many cases because I wasn't able to look at them all. Don't believe everything you hear. We were lied to about these cases, about everything. We were told, for instance, that there was fraud. And then they turn around and say there was no fraud. We were told that no court heard the evidence and that, that these corrupt judges were just turning away the cases one by one by one. No, that's not it either. They did hear the evidence. The, the things that we were told were just lies. They were lying to you to get you gaslighted and then just fired up like, oh, my vote didn't count. My, my voice was stolen. No. No. You were lied to. Trump lied to you. The lawyers, the transcripts, the judges, the affidavits, all of it was a big smokescreen the entire time. I'm sorry, but nothing pisses me off more than this. To, to, to go on a whole circus tour across the country in all of these court cases to be able to present the evidence and then not even be able to back your case up. Are you kidding me? It's it's ridiculous. Anyways, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to beat a dead horse here. I, I got to move on to Texas because I do actually like what the Supreme Court did. I know, like, just crucify me or something. Because the case submitted by Texas, which was spit out by the Supreme Court, would allow them to sue another state over the defendant state's own election law. If they would have been able to do this, and if Texas would have won, or if the case would have been heard, then you have a whole instance here of a state being able to sue another state for not enforcing that state's laws. Effectively, this creates a whole kind of almost federalism attacking itself. And you want to know the only solution to that? Big overarching laws that everybody needs to follow because if you're just going to have disjointment throughout the union then you need something to come in so yeah i am glad because i because that's the president precedent that would have been set there 
is that a state could sue another state over their own internal legal affairs. That would not be right. Every state has the right to, to govern its own state within its own borders. It does not have a right to govern another state, even if the offending state's thing, even if their ignorance of their own laws has seemingly a effect on the other states. I'm sorry, but that's just not just that's just not how it works. And that is why the Supreme Court rejected Texas's case on lack of standing. It was also like the Grand Mac Daddy. I mean, there was like 20 I think like half the union signed on to this case, took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rejected it. Of course they did. If you look at the case. Now, the the case wasn't bad. It really wasn't, but just from a core principle, which is try, what I'm trying to get at here, from a core principle, the case could not be admitted because of the underlying implications of it and how, at root, the argument was ridiculous. A state's borders only extend as far as a state's borders extend. That's just That's just all that needs to be said there. Federalism attacking itself does not work. It really doesn't. Absent me missing something huge, I think that the Texas case was absolutely ridiculous on a fundamental level. All right, then. I think that wraps it up. That is all the reasons why I do not believe in voter fraud. Despite everything I presented in the previous episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I'm not claiming to be in possession of all the evidence here. So if you'd like to reach out to me, then I will have my email for the podcast in the description below. Feel free to shoot me an email if you think I missed something. But I personally think I presented a pretty compelling case for not believing in voter fraud. As always, I am on all platforms where podcasts are streamed, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts. I even found out that I am on Amazon Music and Audacity, so get a load of that if you have those services. If you don't, maybe your friend does. Tell your friend about this podcast, and hopefully they will listen. It helps me out so much to grow the show. I work very hard on it. I've been recording this episode for a few weeks now, um, on and off. You know, I've, I've been in school, and... Uh, Trying to record the episode on the side and then having to re-record because I don't like a take. So, yeah, I, I, I really work hard on these things and I would really appreciate if you guys leave a five-star review or tell your friends about it. Be much, much appreciated. Alright, as always, have a more perfect day.